Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, Warden of Cranmer Hall. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. Why should Christians be involved in politics? How can theology ask real-world questions? What can we learn from Dietrich Bonhoeffer about how theology and politics need to go together? What are the challenges of engaging in faith and politics in a social media context? And how do prayer and worship help us see the world around us different? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to the Right Reverend Nick Baines. Nick is Bishop of Leeds and an expert in public engagement at the intersection of faith and politics, drawing on his background in politics, government and leadership experience in the Church of England. And our title today is, Why is engaging in politics part of Christian faithfulness in our world today? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Talking Theology. Hello, thank you for inviting me. Nick, tell us about yourself and the different places and roles in which you found yourself serving God over the years and perhaps a little bit about your current role as Bishop of Leeds. I believed after university and working abroad when I went to work at GCHQ as a Russian-German-French linguist, that was as much vocation as what I do now. I did Soviet military intelligence during the Cold War there, and then went to train in theology. I was ordained in Carlisle Diocese, did a curacy in Kendal, moved down to Leicestershire for nine years, became Archdeacon of Lambeth in Southwark for two and a half years, Bishop of Croydon for eight years. (laughs) I thought next stop is bound to be Calais because we're heading in the wrong direction, which is a, a scouser as a northerner was not a good direction to go in. And then after eight years as Bishop of Croydon, uh, I came up to be the diocesan Bishop of Bradford, just at the point where they were announcing that the diocese may cease to exist, along with Wakefield and Ripon and Leeds. So I held the diocese through all of that business, and then eventually the new diocese of Leeds was created at Easter 2014, and I became the first Bishop of Leeds. But I also uh, I lead on foreign affairs for the bishops in the House of Lords. I do a lot of international work and media. You're well known for your small p political engagement across a range of media platforms, of which Radio 4 thought for the day is just but one. Can you give us a sense about when that interest or when that ministry kind of first came from? Well, I think... You know, I'm a great believer that we don't live in phases or in stages, you know, that everything becomes part of what comes next. and. While I was at university doing German and French, I majored on, majored on German politics, particularly because of the 20th century history. And then when I went to do Russian and to work at GCHQ, you know, you had to be interested in the politics of pre and post-war Europe. And so 
moving into the church, going, going to train in theology was actually a bit of a shock because people's idea of sin, it seemed to me, was, you know, I had a naughty thought last Thursday, whereas we'd been sort of scraping the underbelly of the military and um, the arms industry and world politics and some pretty dodgy stuff. And I struggled for my first two years at, at theological college because of this discrepancy between the world I'd inhabited and still inhabited, the real world, and the way theology and particularly ethics uh, in theolo- theological college sometimes engage with that stuff. So I became very interested very early on in the need to engage theology with the real world and not to keep them in different boxes. You know, it, it's the classic, it's what I've try- I keep trying to bang away about in the House of Lords, that if you, could, you have to understand the lens through which your interlocutors are seeing God, the world, and us, if you're going to deal with reality. And to do that, you have to learn their language, uh, either metaphorically or actual language. And, you know, I know you're a Russianist as well, Philip, so you know what I'm talking about. Um, but when you look through the lens of a different language at a different culture, you, particularly politically, you see the world differently. And it's part of the problem in this country that because we live on an island and we think everyone else should speak our language, that we fail to understand the world. Nick, you mentioned about that connection between theology and the real world. And that being absolutely kind of crucial, and that was a kind of huge, kind of really significant time for you when you were training uh, at theological college. What was it about in the theological world of the Christian faith that seemed to you to speak so compellingly to the real world? Well, there's only one world, and your theology has to be as uh, consistent and applicable in Baghdad as in Wimbledon, for example. So if your theology only works uh, where things are okay or you have some control or they go well, there's something wrong with it. It's not worth having. Whether you're dealing with um, the Soviet military and some of the real challenges in the world, or you're, you're listening to people being killed on the battlefield, you're, you're dealing with the same questions as whether you're having a cup of tea with you know, an old lady in the parish. The questions are, what's the meaning of my living? What's the meaning of my dying? What's the meaning of history? Why morality? Is God there or not? I mean, they're the same questions that people are asking. They're just in a different context and different scale. There's only one world and your theology has to engage with it. And if it doesn't, it's not the world that's wrong. (laughs) You can't argue with reality. So your theology has to engage with it. As you reflect on both biblical characters and historical figures who have really engaged with these world-shaped questions, who are the ones who you found inspiring, helpful, interesting, challenging even, as you've sought to kind of bring your theology to the real world and ask these world-shaped questions? Well, I'll give you one one example that I think um, encapsulates this, and it comes to mind because I've just been in Germany, and last week I was in Brussels with a conference of European churches, and we had a similar conversation, and it's Bonhoeffer. And this question I have about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is how would his theology have changed 
had he not been executed a month before the end of the Second World War, because his theology was rooted in the context in which he lived and the the critical practical questions he had to address um were as you know with Bonhoeffer you didn't have the luxury of pontificating you had to choose you had to decide it was Bartian in the sense of it was a, a theology of crisis in a world where you lived every day with the real ethical dilemma do I collude with with what's going on or do I do I put myself in a position where the call of God transcends my comfort in the world? He was very clear read his book Discipleship, Nachfolger, principally about the need to get rid of cheap grace and to to make decisions that uh, are not necessarily easy. Now I've just been preaching in Eisenach in Germany a couple of weeks ago. Uh, in the church where Johann Sebastian Bach was baptized, where Martin Luther preached before they whipped him up to the Wartburg, and just above Eisner, where he translated the New Testament into German and formalized the German language. But what isn't known about Eisner is that that was also where the Entjudungsinstitut was set up, which is the De-Judaizing Institute, which was set up by academic theologians, members of the Faculty of Theology at the University of Jena, and they put their energies into removing Judaism and the influence of Judaism from the scriptures and from Christianity. And I have a photograph somewhere of of 5,000 Nazis protesting in the market square in Jena against one academic theologian who refused to bow the knee to the Nazis. That's courage, and that's the sort of decision where we're called to take a position. You can't just knock it around notionally, uh, where the call of God calls you to say thus far and no further. There is a different kingdom. And I, I guess it goes back to the stuff of the New Testament, where if you said the words, Jesus is Lord, you're explicitly saying uh, Caesar is not Lord, and that has implications. So Bonhoeffer comes to mind principally for that, but I do wonder how his theology might have changed or matured in different in a different post-war world. The example you give from Germany reminds us that an approach that some Christians have taken to politics is what one might call a quietist approach. Would you just tell us what a quietist approach is? You've given us an example of perhaps what it looks like, and why is it so theologically problematic and hard to justify from the scriptures? Well, um, look, when I was at GCHQ, um, Margaret Thatcher banned the unions and removed our rights and the Employment Act, 1984. And the night before the deadline, the 1st of March, I was at a Bible study at the church I belonged to with a number of others from GCHQ who were there. And some of us were struggling with what to do. And I, in the end, went over to the rector and said, can you come and help us? And he said, no. He said, I've not had to face this question, and I'm dealing with church. And I always swore that that was inadequate, and I would never, ever do that to anyone. Now, that's in one sense a quietest approach that puts church and world in different categories and different compartments, or says that the responsibility of the church is to pray for the the powers that are there, according to Romans 13, by God, and it is not our role to interfere in the political world. 
Now, I think that's complete nonsense because politics is about people and the right ordering of society, which um, has to do with power and power relationships. Now, Christianity has nothing to do with people or the right ordering of society. Then what is it for? You know, in, in, an incarnational theology is about engaging with the world which we believe is God's. The, if the kingdom of God is anything, it's about, you know, picking up on Revelation 21 and the story of the scriptures that God comes to us. God takes the initiative, engages with the material world. It's the new Jerusalem, you know, the heavenly city comes down to earth, not us going up to it. So Christian faith can never be escapist, but like Jesus, we have to be committed to the world into which we are called and to live differently. But there are no exemptions from suffering the fate of that world. So Christianity can't be an escape or a distraction from the reality of the world in which we live. You live out your uh, faith and your commitment to embracing faith and politics through a particular role that you have as a bishop in the House of Lords and therefore have a formal platform in shaping the political and legislative agenda of the UK. I wonder from that perspective, what do you observe about Christians being involved in politics and about the different trends, both that you find encouraging and perhaps more concerning? What do you observe from that particular position or perspective? You know, I would never expect politicians or any Christians to have a unanimous view of God, the world, and us, uh, although I think the conversation between them should be rooted in our unity in Christ. But when people compartmentalize, they individualize the faith and put that in one box. So you, you worship cheerfully on a Sunday, but engage differently in the political world on Monday to Saturday, there's something wrong. Now, at the moment, I'm, I'm going to be quite open. Some of us bishops are having a bit of a dispute over how we should engage publicly over Boris Johnson, the current government, and Partygate, and all of these you know, things that are going on. My view is, and I've always been clear about this, at the beginning, just post-Brexit, when we uh, started on the EU withdrawal legislation, um, I did a speech at second reading in the House of Lords where I spoke openly about the corruption of the public discourse and the normalization of lying. I referred to our foreign secretary at one point um, as an amoral liar. And interestingly, I got a lot of criticism for that, although I said it in a lecture, a lot of criticism. No one, no one criticized me for the accuracy of what of the judgment I'd made, they criticized me for saying it. Now, if the church has a prophetic role, then I think we have no alternative but to speak the truth, whether it upsets government or not. And that's where there's a bit of a debate and a difference between some of us at the moment, as I think we should be quite open um, about naming the ethical stuff. And others are more pragmatic about how you have to work with government and therefore, you know, we ought to watch how we go about it. And it's not an easy debate. You know, I can see different sides of the argument, but like we said about Bonhoeffer, in the end, you have to come down with a judgment and then suffer the consequences of how people react to what you do or don't say. But to do nothing and say nothing is a political act. It's not neutral. It's a positive act, and it contributes to the public discourse, either positively or negatively. Silence speaks.
You mentioned the criticism that you've received. I mean, you're not somebody who holds back on social media in terms of your visible and present. What are your insights and experiences about the way in which that context has changed your own political involvement and the way you navigate politics as a bishop? Well, I think I've learned a number of things. I mean, I was on Twitter almost from when it began, and it was just to propagate my blog, frankly. I didn't engage uh, hugely on everything, but I think there's been a great blurring of the lines between the private and the public. And so I, I actually say very little at the moment. I retweet stuff and you know, I, I still do broadcasting on radio to radio four and I put up speeches and stuff like that. But Twitter is, <laughs> is not the whole of the reality of life and Twitter spats do not necessarily represent effective discourse with the world. So I think we ought to keep it in perspective. And I engage where I think it's worth engaging, but I've learned to discriminate. And I don't always pitch in now. I mean, look, when Dominic Cummings um, did his Barnard Castle thing, I did tweet um, following the press conference that Boris did. Um, and I effectively asked how long we're going to put up with these lies. Now, I got absolutely hammered then, so I just went silent, because sometimes you have to. It's not worth engaging in the fight. And eventually, I, you know, I came back on, on the scene when it had died down a bit. But I, I remember when Rowan Williams did his um, lecture on Sharia, and which some may remember, and he got absolutely hammered, although he wasn't saying what the media reported him as saying he was actually posing the question, you know, if uh, we are to protect people like Muslim women who are married under Sharia law but not under English law, what do you have to do to enable that to be legalised to protect the interests of such people? That was the sort of question. And uh, he got absolutely hammered. And I had to go on the Today programme uh, to to be interviewed by John Humphreys on the leadership of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And his line was, why has he gone quiet? This is poor leadership. And I remember saying um, on air, well, what do you understand good leadership to be? And, of course, what radio hates is silence. Um, and I remember John uh, Humphreys that went, well, um, well, I thought I was asking the questions. And I said, well, if you don't, tell me what you understand leadership to be. I can't tell you whether he's a good one or a bad one. So he started to answer my question. And I interrupted him in the end and said, look, if you think good leadership is about speaking every time someone sticks a microphone in front of your mouth, then um, he's clearly not a good leader. But if, like me, you think, what's the point in speaking when no one's listening? So wait till it's burned out a bit, which will take three, four, five days till the commentary out of all had their, you know, their say, then it might be worth them saying something when people are listening and ready to hear. That maybe is good leadership. It might not be popular for the media, but our job isn't to feed the media monster. And we carried on the discussion, but John came out with me out of the studio at the end and basically agreed with me and said it's just frustrating for the media when we don't play their game. Well, it's not our job to play their game. And sometimes we have to learn to hold our nerve and not to speak just because the microphone is put in front of us. You've used an example earlier about when you were working at GCHQ about the way in which your faith and your political 
engagement came together in that evening Bible study. Looking back now on your own involvement in faith and politics over the years, how has this experience shaped your own life of prayer, of faith and of worship? It's made me more and more convinced of the importance of the Church of England and of organised religion, that if you're going to make a difference in the world, you have to work with others. You don't have to agree with them. But at the heart of that has to be worship, the worship of the one God who we see in Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, engaged with what I always call a confident humility that is convinced by the gospel, but always conscious that I might be getting some of this wrong. So that's why I talk about a confident humility, uh, which is different from a humble confidence, but let's not get into that. And I think that has to be, in, in prayer, what happens is that we are exposed to the gaze of God in the reading of scriptures uh, and prayer. It's the lens behind our eyes begins to get reground so that we increasingly see God, the world, and us as as God sees them. And therefore, repentance lies at the heart of, of what we're about. I don't know anyone who agrees with me on this, but I think Mark's gospel is shaped so that he's not interested in the Johannine prologue and all the theology and all of that. He just wants some action. And in chapter one, you get all the stuff, you know, in one verse, the baptism and temptation, which in um, Matthew's gospel takes 11 or 12 verses. And then you get to Mark 1, verse 14 and 15, and it says that he returned to Galilee, this is after the baptism uh, and temptations, he returned to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Now, I think you're supposed to stop there and ask, what was the good news of God? How What would have been heard as the good news of God? And I think only one thing would have been heard as the good news of God. The Romans are going. That's when we have evidence that when the Romans go, we get our land back, we get our worship back, we get our politics back, we can worship freely, we don't have to walk around with Roman coins in our pockets doing our daily trade and blasphemy because they're engraved with the head of the emperor and the words emperor and son of God. You see where I'm going with this. So that's what would have been heard as good news. So verse 15, proclaiming the good news of God, you then get four statements of what I think this was, which is the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. The time is fulfilled is the kairos. Now is the time that God is among you again. The presence of God, the kingdom of God is among you. But how can the holy God be present when the blasphemous pagans are still here? We know about purity and lack of contamination. But then the third statement is repent. And repent, as you know, literally means change your mind, metanoin. And I think what Jesus is saying there is you think you spot the presence of God when the Romans are gone, where things therefore come back under your control and everything is theologically ordered. Dare you see differently? Dare you look differently at the world and at God in order to see differently God, the world and us, in order to think about God, the world and us differently, in order to live in the world with God and us differently? That's repentance. Or do you only see the presence of God when all is well? And then where it says believe in the good news, you know, as you know, belief isn't 
give your intellectual assent to a set of propositions about God. It's about, in a Hebraic sense, now commit yourself body, mind and spirit to what you now see differently. And then the rest of Mark's gospel is an account of who could repent and see differently and so on, and who couldn't. And of course, the joke of it all is that it's the wrong people in each category. So the people who, you know, study the scriptures, go to church regularly and all of that, are the ones who can't and nail him. And the ones who do are the people who who don't need telling in one sense that they're a bit rubbish because they've been told that for you know their whole life. And they find in Jesus that repentance means that they learn that they are loved and created and redeemed and so on. And that's my reading of Mark's gospel. And as I say, I, I, I haven't come across anyone who agrees with me, but I think I think that's one way in which it works. And that speaks into our politics and our, our engagement, and certainly my engagement as a Christian and as a bishop, uh, engaged both in the church and in the wider world, nationally and internationally. Am I constantly in prayer, the reading of scriptures, and the worship within a community and a community of communities, am I having my lens so reground that I'm able to repent and therefore to see differently? So I never have a problem saying I've got this wrong. Never. If people say, you know, you've made a complete mistake, my hands will go up first. I have no shame with that. But I do think we need to be engaged in the process with a confident humility. You've given us a wonderful invitation and example of looking differently in order to think differently. Nick Baines, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.